Welcome to the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast, where we explore popular practices, songs, and ideas in the modern church world in the light of Sola Scriptura and Total Scriptura. I'm Cody Fields, president of Westminster Effects. You can go buy stuff for your guitar at westminstereffects.com. You can join the discussion in the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast Lounge. Sorry, that's a lot of uh, words and syllables. That's John's fault, by the way. You'll hear from him in a minute. Make sure you subscribe, comment, leave us a review, help us beat the algorithm. In person, I'm joined by... Hey, everybody. It's Bradley, uh, pastor at Resurrection Church in Greer, South Carolina. And via the interwebs. Hey, everybody. On mute, no longer. Uh, from Lincoln, Nebraska, John Ross, Admiral, Augsburgian Christian, uh, creator of multi-syllable Facebook group titles uh, <laughs> in, here in, in the digital flesh. Glad to be... <laughs> Glad to be back. I feel like a guest. I feel like a guest now. Like I really want to say, glad to be back on the program. Like, well, <laughs> if you just if you just quit your job and dedicate know, all of your I know, right? To Tuesdays, and mm-hmm. yeah. we'd be okay. <laughs> Alas, we cannot. But let's jump right in. We had a little bit of a delay. We'll blame John for that. Um, <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. So we did uh, we did the whole total depravity and free will thing last week, and this is going to build on that. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, <laughs> go back and listen. <laughs> Apparently, it's gag worthy, according to Brad. Sorry, he's coughing into the microphone. But uh, uh, tulips. Yeah, if if you didn't listen to that one, this one won't make a lot of sense, you know, because of how the things flow. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about the doctrine of election. And specifically in our camps, and I think this is the same in the Lutheran camp of election being unconditional, right? Correct. All right, good. All right, yes. we're all on the same we, page. We're we not ag- fight it out. Yeah, we agree on the U. We can we can fight it out on the L next time. But yes, yeah, and then you know the the uh, uh, the actual mechanisms of uh, the election differ uh but uh, sure. we'll get into that hmm. sure so i guess kind of baseline definition of unconditional election is that god does not look through the corridors of time and elect who he will save based upon a foreseen choice no. right he he elects without that condition before he even knows what you're going, well, quote unquote, before he knows. That's, that doesn't make sense. Sorry. Let me back up on my doctrine of God. Mm. He, he does all of these things without reference to what you're going to do. Because all we can do in regards to our own salvation, as Isaiah put it, is filthy rags. You know, uh, even a decision is going to be a filthy rag. Mm. Uh, so God chooses before the foundation of the world corporately and individually those whom he will save in the end is that fair yep all right fair so what and can we bible that anybody can't it it can't be the cody show fellas (laughs) i'm I'm waiting to see john hadn't been on in a while i want to see if you want to comment first 
Well, you know, the, the main part where we, where we diverse, see, the thing is, is that, uh, Lutheranism has a very strong doctrine of predestination. It's just not often associated with us right? because we don't ascribe to what many call double predestination, uh, which is the thought, which, which is the line of, of thinking and teaching where, um, you know, God has elected uh, those unto salvation, and uh, there are also then those he has not so elected or not so chosen, uh, essentially implying that he's predestined some uh, to uh, to glory and then uh, some to uh, to the punishment of uh, of hell and separation from him. We don't ascribe to that second uh, part. Because as we've talked about on the show prior, uh, many times Lutherans are perfectly okay with uh, with with the paradox. Um, and, and what we would say, and I think Bradley, you would say this, uh, so correct me if I'm wrong, where we would see double predestination more so uh, along the lines of everyone starts with the default of being hellbound. Right, right. As and you know, a lot of people, I know you're not doing this, but a lot of people will, will misrepresent it, saying that we're all neutral and God says I'm going to send this guy to hell and this guy to heaven. Right, right. Um, <laughs> whereas we would say that God passes over those who He's not electing to heaven, which then has the result of them being uh, punished eternally. And so, as I think it's R.C. Sproul who said, it's not equal ultimacy. It's not, it's not going from the neutral saying, all right, this guy goes here and this guy goes the opposite. It's we're all on the opposite. We're all hellbound. And then right. God decides, mm-hmm. you know, so yep, anyway. Yep. Yeah, it's not like a like a you know assembly line where good parts go to the left, good parts go to the right. Just, it's right. just um the uh you know, I the, the main part where we diverge there is is in that is in that paradox you know the the more uh calvinistic tradition seeks often to kind of explain and and work out these these paradoxical thoughts um where we uh i kind of lost where i was (laughs) where i was going on that um but there are some pieces and, and this is obviously not not me putting uh digging my heels in because i legitimately want to know you know where we would usually say uh the difference is is where if we acknowledge that there are some that god has not so chosen i mean realistically then that th- then we are on the same page so your flavor and my flavor are a lot closer together than some of these other these other flavors of the doctrine of predestination um in the cases where it's taught that God sends some by will to the left and some by will to the right, uh, that would seem to be uh, a conflict of the wills because we we hear it you know very very clearly. I think it's in James that God desires all to be saved, or maybe Peter that God desires all to be saved. And how do we? Uh, reconcile that um with this doctrine of of the double predestination the more extreme take on that yeah and um and 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 i would disagree with how you're interpreting that in second peter but 
Regardless. Well, I think it. I think I think that's worth pausing on for a minute. Sure. It, it, it like, it. like John. Not. I don't. This is episode is not a debate. I don't want to turn it into that. But I, I, I would ask, like, for those who are saved, what is the decisive? What or who is the decisive cause of that salvation? The atoning blood of Christ. Yeah, but I'm I'm talking about yeah that's that's the the means by which it's the accomplished. means yeah but the the decisive cause in other words how how is it that a person goes from death to life who does that only by who, the, who initiates no, uh, only only by the work of only by the work of uh, of God through the provision of faith through the Spirit and all the other stuff so if someone then is not saved and goes to hell what was the decisive cause for that if god's the decisive cause for those who are saved right then who is the decisive cause in not being saved and and that's where i'll completely completely be on the be on the same track as as you guys is like our default position is not saved right so there mm-hmm. there is no really decisive action needed there other right. than that other than that of judgment right that's uh, right which which if that's you know that's your default um right and and so i i agree with i think we are in agreement so some people talk about double predestination as if it's like cody said we're all in this neutral we're born into this neutral position and right. then god separates us into saved and unsaved yeah you know. and, and we agree that that's that that's not the case and the the traditional arguments that i'm familiar with of uh, kind of lutheranism versus predestination or double predestination is uh is more against the 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 radicalized version of that where it's a uh, an affirmative decision to, for either outcome mm-hmm. right rather than a passive passive result i mean the uh I mean, it could be argued that by not choosing and leaving someone in their state, then God, in his wisdom and in his will, then in a roundabout way, did decide to leave them in that state rather than yep. the, rather than removing yeah. them from it. Well, and that, and, that's and, what how does, and how does that work? And even your difference in interpretation, which I am absolutely open to hearing, uh, from second peter is that god desires all to be saved where's the difference in interpretation there and depending on what that interpretation is how how does that uh get reconciled with even the inaction right if god desires all to be saved and we agree that it is uh uh unconditional election um I, I think there's the bit of the difference between like limited atonement here too, uh, and and where where that goes. Um, well, so yeah, talk, talk me talk me through how you okay. guys think about this, so I can have a better understanding. I I want I want to stop making just random noises and talking in circles. So Second Peter, let, let's first establish to whom is every epistle in the new testament written believing or unbelieving people believing yeah i was was on me okay Uh, so there 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 is no new testament letter 
that is evangelistically addressed to the unbelieving. Right. Fair? We all, we're on the same page? All right. Agreed. So second, second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Writing to the believing people, he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. So there's a clear reference that he's writing to believing people, right? He's writing to the beloved that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. So the, the, the issue he's addressing there is that even in the first century, people are going, all right, when's this Jesus coming back? You keep talking about, well, here's what Peter says to that. The Lord is not slow. He, he, he doesn't work on our timetable. But here's the latter part of verse nine, but is patient toward you. Who is the you? The believers in this case. yeah. Believers and all those who will believe. Right. Right. He's addressing the body. He's addressing those who are or will be in faith. Is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And I would argue that the all is still within the context of the still, audience of the epistle. That's exactly right. So the, the illustration that I've used on this um, is if I throw a Christmas party for my small group that my wife and I lead, and I say, hey, here's the address. Make sure you use Google Maps instead of MapQuest, because I don't want anybody get to get lost, but I want everyone to get to the party. Mm-hmm. I don't want 8 billion people to show up in my driveway. <laughs> yep. That would be a mess for one. Uh, and two, some of those people are weird. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, what I'm saying there is I want everybody to arrive from the people who I've actually elected right. to come to the party. Now that, that makes sense. Let's, I want to carry that thought a little, a little more there. Um, because honestly, this is not a doctrine discussed all that often in in my world yeah so if if we agree that the god desires all to be saved uh is in the context of the audience of the uh, of the epistle to, to all believers okay um and we agree that god's decision to choose his his divine election is not predicated on any uh on on any future decision or mm-hmm. action by us we agree there then what is it based on because after that then everything could flow from that right everything else can flow from because if you because if you're elected obviously uh, uh you know we could bring in some perseverance of the saints things and, and there that, that you will come to faith by the by the will and and, and plan uh, of of the father, but that initial decision, where do, where do we find the scriptural rubric on how that decision is made, or do we just say it's God and His divine counsel, and we're okay with that? And I'm okay if that's the answer, because, like I said, as a Lutheran, I'm all right not having all the answers. When you say decision, are you talking about the one we make? Right. So I would go, this is where I would go. I think I talked about this on the last podcast, but Romans chapter six, okay, verse 16. So excuse me, verse 17. Um, 
Paul writes and says, but thanks be to God. So obviously, if he is expressing praise and thanks to God, God has done something. Right. Okay. That you who were once slaves to, of sin. So that's the unregenerate state. I am. Th- this is where I think people misunderstand uh, what it means for a human being to have volition. And we talked about this last time is that your I my my will, so to speak, my volition does not create my desire. Right. My desire creates my will. And here's the problem as it relates to original sin or total depravity is that apart from divine grace or divine intervention, I don't want God. Right. Spiritually blind, dead enemy of God. That's right. So John chapter one, people love darkness and hate light. Okay. Romans chapter two, three, uh, no one does good. No one seeks after God. For all of sin falls short of the That's right. So thanks be to God. He took slaves of sin. We were once slaves of sin and have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin or having been set free from my desires Mm -hmm. being bound to sin. Now I've become a slave of righteousness. So what happened is this is probably a little bit of an oversimplistic way to say it, but there's a lot of truth here in divine election. God fixes our broken wanter. Right. Right. And, and that's, that's, you know, com- completely in line with what, what, uh, you know, Luther would explain in his text, the bondage of the will, his second favorite, you know, mm-hmm. piece that he's. So when he fixes, when he fixes the broken wanter, then I do choose him. I do pursue him because not because I'm a robot, but because I want to, I'm, I've been set free from my right. will being bound to the desire to sin. And now my will is bound to the desire for righteousness and so that's where the human choice comes in but divine grace must precede that absolutely because because i'm of the state that we're born into i guess where and and this and and, i certainly don't acknowledge that that uh you know my tradition has has the answer for this either it's something uh that i i legitimately don't have the answer to and that is do we have any rubric on where or when or how he make not when, but how he makes that decision to whose wanter he will fix? Mm-hmm. Well, Ephesians one would say he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Right. So before before he made anything, he divinely elected some to be saved. And sure. the question the question is like, okay. Um, it, it does God get what he wants? Absolutely. You know, and some people take that second Peter three uh, passage and go, okay, God desires that all should be saved. And the all means everybody that's ever lived or will ever live. Well, that doesn't make sense because if God, I, I'm, I'm willing to acknowledge that God's emotional makeup is a lot more complex than ours. Right. Uh, thus, you know, he can say, 
um, I regret making man, um, you know, like it, it, God doesn't regret the same way that we do. He, he doesn't go, whoops, that didn't work. Uh, but in the end, you know, Isaiah declares, he's the God who declares the end from the beginning. I will accomplish all my purposes. So God gets what he wants. Absolutely. So what he does is he, uh, uh, according to his own sovereign wisdom and righteousness, he elects some. And my understanding of so-called double predestination is that everybody's born into original sin, um, into the unregenerate state, but he sovereignly elects some, but he still gives life to those who don't elect. He doesn't elect, which is why he would say, you know, why, you know, Paul quoting Yahweh in Romans nine, Jacob, I loved Esau. I hated before they were born, before they had the opportunity to do any good or evil, Jacob, I loved Esau. I hated it was Isaac. It wasn't Ishmael. Um, and in Romans nine, I call Pharaoh, my servant, not elected, but still created for right. the purpose of serving God's redemptive plan in the nation of Israel, slavery in Egypt, that, that you know, and, and oh, all yeah, absolutely. I mean, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart absolutely, you know, worked in the redemptive plan. Uh, I, and, and I, I think the part that I'm still, that I, <laughs> that I want the Calvinists to have an answer for, because we don't, because we are like, ah, well, that's just the way it is, is in his divine wisdom, before the before the foundation of time, he elects some. The question is why? I why does the, he elect some, and what are his criteria? Right. Before, I, I wish the, we could identify that. The the root, like when you get to the very bottom, it's for his glory. And sure, uh, we can throw that around flippantly, of course. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the fun things about getting more familiar with the Old Testament is you see, like, there's nothing properly new in the new testament that isn't in the old testament mm -hmm. uh, you have further revelation of what's in the old testament right. but it's mm -hmm. all there so in deuteronomy 7 uh when god is talking to israel who old covenant people of god and we would understand that it's the church you know from adam and eve to the end that makes up the church right Right. Uh, all of the redeemed people of God, but he uses Israel as his old covenant shadow, uh, I would say. Uh, he said, for you are for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. <laughs> Y'all aren't special. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I mean, goodness, we, I mean, echoes in Romans mm -hmm. six too, right? Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and of course that's, that's what you would expect. Uh, I think if we, if we, desire to have a complete understanding and to have a reason for everything uh, i think we have to default on that it is for ultimately for god's glory and his 
divine criteria are not revealed to us. He has made his decision. I mean, are, are we on the same track here? Yeah. Um, I mean, because starting at the, at the very pardon the pun, the very Genesis of this, this elective action, um, assumably there was some sort of criteria that or, or, or methodology used. I mean, of course, I mean, we're ascribing very human like traits, you know, to the almighty and that's not fair to, to him and, 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 uh, at all. Uh, but I, I think we would like to see a methodology or a criteria on why am I a member of the elect and, and not Jimmy Joe over there? Why, mm-hmm. you know, not that we know necessarily. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, there, I think that's a great question. And I think that there are, I don't know, hints and clues in each individual situation. I mean, think about the very essence of Jacob and Esau, Jacob being the younger, Esau being the older, the younger shall serve or the older shall serve the younger. Why did God choose Jacob? There's a sense in which, because he was the least likely. Mm -hmm. And, and, and why would he choose the least likely except to put the riches of his glorious grace, Ephesians 2, uh, or Ephesians 1, on display all the more. Mm-hmm. Why would he choose Gideon? Why would he choose a stammering Moses? Right. Um, why, why would he choose an unmarried, an unmarried virgin? Uh, yeah. It, wh- why, would he, why would he do this? Why did he choose Abraham? You know, a, a, an idol making nomad chooses Abraham. Right. Um, and, and then, and then doesn't give him a son until he's a hundred. Yeah. And what, you know, and purposefully promises him a son, you know, I don't know at what point in, uh, women like Sarah would go through menopause given how long they lived, mm-hmm. but it, Mary and I just read, what was it? Genesis 17 or 18 the other morning where it said, you know, all, all her womanliness had dried up. In other words, <laughs> she had by that point, all her reproductive systems were shut down. Yeah. Right. They were, they're retired. Uh, you know, they're, they're off the team. And it was at that point that God finally tells Abraham, you're going to have a son via Sarah. Uh, he, he had told him you're going to have a son. But it, he had never said until that point, you're going to have a son via Sarah. Mm. You know, he thought it was going to be Ishmael. No, it's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be Isaac. And, and Sarah. When she, that's when she laughs. That's when she laughs. And she's and like, I didn't laugh. And God's, God's like, like, no, you yeah, did laugh. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you also have uh, Romans uh, chapter nine. Like we've, we've referenced it, but uh, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. You know, and it's a lot of people want to make that only corporate, uh, but it is individual because there are individual vessels. Well, and I think it, I think we have to, 
acknowledge this is that God obviously intends a world where redemption, grace, and mercy are necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, they they are essential to put the riches of His glorious grace on display. And so, if you think about that, if part of the revelation of His glory is His grace and His mercy, then why does He elect those whom He elects? Well, it's because, and and we have to you have to be careful with this all need grace and mercy. None is righteous. No, not one. So that's true. But those whom he elects in some way or another are going to magnify that the riches of his glorious grace and his mercy, the fact that we couldn't merit it. That's what we're going to spend eternity praising. I've told my church this before is that my grandfather, who was a very godly man, but grew up in a a very theologically weak uh, and anemic church tradition. Um, And he used to tell me about this dream he had all the time. Um, Not all dreams come from God. Some of them come because of what we've been taught. Uh, But he said this dream, he would, uh, he died and he, and he lifted off the ground and, and I guess in some way ascended in, into heaven or something. And he said, when I got there, I, would, I, I just said, I'm glad I made it. And I don't think anybody's going to have that sentiment mm-hmm. um, when, we, when we get there. I think when, when the kingdom comes in its fullness, the sentiment of all those who will spend eternity rejoicing will be, God, it's entirely your fault that I'm here. Um, it's entirely your fault that I'm here. Yep. Any last thoughts, John? Need to pop out. I mean, I mean, I could, I, I, I could go for, for hours exploring this because again, this isn't something that's often explored, uh, within the Lutheran tradition, primarily because, uh, it's. I mean, it's it's a challenging teaching because we don't have we don't have the answers, and so much of of the of Lutheran doctrine effectively says if we can't explain it, then we're just okay with that. I mean, the sacramental mystery, right? Mm-hmm. The uh, mm-hmm. uh, that union of uh, body and blood and bread and wine in, with, and under. You know, uh, using that specific phrase so that we're not. Uh, trying to capture transubstantiation like we would see in the Roman tradition uh, where the substance changes, but the accidents doesn't and where we wouldn't go to the other, where it's simply just, uh, you know, simply just a representative uh, ritual. uh, But, you know, that piece in between, and and we just say it's a sacramental mystery. Like we don't understand how it happens and, but we're not going to, prescribe how it happens uh we're just going to acknowledge that it's not necessarily uh described and and this is very much the same uh, the same case uh i mean it sounds like we're a lot closer than i i think i anticipated coming into it um obviously um you fellows are much, much more deeply versed on the topic because it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's part of one of the 
the fundamental foundations of the Calvin, you know, Calvinistic doctrine. Um, but yeah, I could go on, I could go on for hours, but I think at the end of the day, you know, we can agree and, and rejoice that, uh, you know, God is sovereign and his decision is not based, whatever it is based on, we know it's not based on our performance or our decisiveness, uh, but based strictly, strictly upon his will, which he then provides uh, for the culmination of. And I think yeah. we can rejoice in that. And I, and I think in fairness to the Lutheran camp, we reform types can learn from, as Calvin said, we need to learn from Calvin, <laughs> is he said, when the scriptures stop speaking, we need to shut up too. Right. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't, I don't know that you can necessarily make a scriptural case for your different brands of lapsarianism and stuff like that. Sure. Um, and, and there's some points where some reform dudes need to stop. Right. Well, I, th- I think it's worth noting that Calvin did not come up with Tulip. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, and neither it, did Dork. Uh, right. I, I, you know, that, that that was something his students came up with mm-hmm. in response, you know, based on his in teaching, response to his teachings. Sure. Well, based on his teaching in response to, you know, the rise of Arminian theology. Um, but it, it Calvin, it, and this is what I've told people. People ask me if I'm a Calvinist and I say I'm a biblicist. I read scripture and I want to understand what the Bible has to say about salvation. And I think, John, you raise a, a good question where there is an element of mystery that we, we can, there are some things we can say about it based on scripture, but there may not be every little blank that we have in our mind about why he chose the people he chose may not be fully answered in scripture. Yep. Uh, and so, therefore, we need to be silent at that point, and we don't need to make tulip-inspired scripture. Right. Uh, is it based on inspired scripture? I think so. Yeah, and it's and it's a helpful tool. Yeah, but I don't. When I talk, start to talk to people about the sovereignty of God and salvation, I don't. I don't lay before them tulip and say, "All right, let's start with T." Yeah. I, I say, "Let's go to Romans." Right. Let's go to Second Peter. Let's go to First Peter, chapter one. Blessed right. be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's start to talk about what the Bible actually says about those who are who have been saved. Right. I mean, starting with the the uh, explanatory construct is is inappropriate. Yeah. You need to start at the source. And then if we want to kind of take a more systematic approach and start explaining these, these individual components uh, and, and how they work together, then those, those constructs that, that effectively we have organized um, to make things a little more uh easy to chew on for our, our, you know, our feeble human brains, then that's where they can be useful. But, you know, we should never start, um, we, we should never start a discussion or a, whether it's a, a witnessing discussion or, or, a, uh, a, uh, academic discussion, you know, we should start with our baseline. That baseline is scripture, not on those who studied it before us. Yep. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Let's move on to a real quick inquisition. Mm-hmm.
and this is the inquisition where you ask us questions and we answer them on the fly which is usually no different than what we normally do but it is different from today because i did give the heads up yes you did you're welcome mm-hmm. uh so as is tradition we start with brian morris who i think is going to be our only question today because we're running a little long he asks and we've talked about this before but it's okay when is it time to kick the dust off of your feet on a church or a ministry Hmm. And let's let's just assume they're not preaching heresy. You know, this is this is a faithful church where maybe someone feels like it's time to get out. So when's it time? That's just that's just not an easy question to answer. No, maybe maybe some good reasons and some bad reasons. I'm starting I'm starting to regret that in our almost 200 episodes that I haven't like tagged uh our episodes with metadata because i'm pretty sure we've answered this a couple a couple different times and undoubtedly a couple different ways um too and i and i can imagine it goes back to you know pray for wisdom pray for guidance talk to people love people don't burn bridges Mm -hmm. uh you know make sure god is glorified in in your actions Mm -hmm. and don't seek to be an unnecessary stumbling block to other children of god Uh, i can imagine that those are our underlying underlying themes uh but pragmatically uh I mean, if there's if there's something, let, let's a community of believers, uh, Orthodox, sure. It's difficult to say without knowing what the actual, you know, the actual issue or tensions are. Um, but perhaps it's a practice, right? Um, you know, people know my my distaste with some of the things my church does uh, or has done in the past, more of the gimmicky things. Um, and I'd be lying if I said I hadn't considered, uh, um, you know, hitting the saddle and, and going on down the road. But there are redeeming qualities mm-hmm. that... Uh, in in the IT world, uh, we would say mitigating uh, mitigating items uh, that mitigating controls. We'd say in the compliance world, at least, to uh, to make those things not seem necessarily as uh, as important or or as impactful. Yeah, uh, I mean, for me, the the church that Kristen and I left before we came to Res, it was a matter of conscience. Uh, the pastor was insistent that we open the service with the Katy Perry song mm-hmm. and I was having none of it. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not saying I handled it perfectly, but my conscience would not allow me to do that. And I could see that this was going to be a trend. And so I did some Google foo and found where we are now. Mm-hmm. Glad we did. Baby, that. you're a fire, baby. You're a firework. <laughs> I think that actually <laughs> was the song. Oh, uh, Bradley, maybe without being too specific is is there uh, someone who has left a church that you've served at before that stands out as maybe like the dumbest reason to leave a church? Oh, there's been a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, I could go on and on about examples of just dumb. like how John could explore the doctrine of election for hours. You can explore dumb reasons. People have left churches for hours. <laughs> I, I, I'll tell you, I, I had a couple here at res years and years ago. Um, and we had <clears throat> invited the, the wife to be a deacon, mm-hmm. uh, a trustee. And so she was serving on the trustees and this guy was plugged in in children's ministry, 
my point is this this was not just a couple on the fringes they were very plugged yep. into the church and we we loved them they had an adopted son and it, it everything seemed to be going great but in one sermon oh no this was now and and granted this was probably 15 years ago um so don't don't hold me too much to what I taught 15 years ago. Uh, there, but, there has been a shift. <laughs> uh, but I raised the question. I didn't even say definitively one way or the other. I just raised the question whether that I, I wasn't sure that there was going to be a premillennial rapture. Mm-hmm. I just said that. I said I, I, I struggle to find ironclad proof in Scripture that that is exactly what's going to happen. But. You know, I said to the church, I said, there, this is not anything for us to get divided of. They left the church over that. Mm-hmm. And I, I just feel like that there are there are a host of things that I've seen over the years where people just for dumb reasons, you know, break community and don't do the hard work that community requires. I applaud you, John, for sticking with your church, despite some of the things that really irritate you at times about it, because I've heard you say, these are my people. Yep. And as a whole, you are you are benefiting from being a part of that church, and they're not preaching heresy. There's there's there is good solid biblical teaching, and your family's growing in in the Lord, uh, and and you have people that you rely on, and they rely on you, and and that to me says, generally speaking, when somebody asks the question that way, mm-hmm. when's a good time to leave a church? My my red flags go up at that point and go, they probably don't have one. They don't, they probably don't have a good reason to leave wherever they are. They're looking for something. Maybe they are things that are irritating them like John and, and not that you haven't considered it, John, like you said, but uh, I I think we should be very slow to leave a church uh, for reasons related to preference. Um, non-essential secondary issue type things right we should be very slow to leave a church over that if somebody starts preaching outright heresy you leave as fast as you possibly can um anytime the authority of scripture is dumbed down or the glory of god is diminished in any way or sin is being tolerated in the life of the church or the leadership of the church. Those are reasons to leave as fast as you can. Absolutely. But preference, secondary issues, non-essential doctrinal things. Um, I, I just would be very, very slow to leave over those reasons. Yeah. It's you will never find a perfect church. No. And, and even you won't find a perfect church that checks all of your boxes, like That's all your right. preferences. I've said it before. If it was totally up to me, just as you know, one of those things, if it was totally up to me, we'd have communion every week. Right. But it's not up to me. That's right. <laughs> but that's a preference thing that you have. There's right. no mandate in scripture that we right. have to take communion every exactly. week. Mm-hmm. But it 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 that's a preference thing that right. you have. And the truth is, this is the 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 luxury or curse that we have in this part of the world depending on how you look at it you could very easily leave res and find a church not far from your house that takes communion every week right is that a reason to leave no it's just simply not and and because these are your people exactly right yeah good stuff well thanks for listening to the westminster effects doxology podcast until next week go love god love your neighbor make some music See you next time.
You know what I find interesting is that you always you always blame me for the Westminster <laughs> Effects Doxology Podcast Lounge, but all I did was add a word, one word, one word. It's not even plural, even yeah. it's singular. Yeah. Mm. Shame. <laughs> <laughs>